You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. Hi, everyone. It's Hannah. Typically, I like to start these episodes with a clip from the interview I had with our guest. But on today's episode, we're going to dive right into the conversation because Dr. Chess's story that he tells leads us seamlessly into today's topic of financial decision making and cognitive health. So today's guest is Dr. Eric Chess, an affiliate professor specializing in healthcare administration in the MBA at Denver program. He joined the University of Denver's Noble Institute for Healthy Aging in 2017. He is a physician and lawyer with a focus on prevention and wellness and has over a decade of experience as both a hospitalist and a primary care physician in internal medicine. Prior to his medical work, he was an attorney and an economic consultant. Dr. Chess is also presently the director of the Paul Freeman Financial Security Program at the University of Denver. So in this conversation, we discuss the intersection of financial security and cognitive health, research that is being done in that space, as well as signs that you can watch out for to recognize financial fraud. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So first things first, Eric, thank you for being here and talking to us and sharing your expertise with us. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Oh, thanks for having me, Hannah. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. You know, in, in our work um, in in this area, we come across so many interesting stories and some are heartbreaking tales involving devastating financial fraud. Uh, but these stories represent maybe one glaring end of the spectrum. I'd like to share a different, more subtle story told by a, a certified financial planner in a class that we taught at the Stern School of Law here at uh, the University of Denver. Um, he told our students about uh, an 85-year-old client of his who had significant health issues, colon cancer, uncontrolled diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, in and out of the hospital many times in the last uh, bunch of years. But given all that, um, high-functioning individual, his client was fully independent, uh, living alone in his house, taking care of all, all activities of daily living, really requiring no assistance and no issues with memory or cognitive impairment that were diagnosed or apparent. So when going through his finances, um, he the, the client informed our certified financial planner that um, he had recently purchased a new car. Um, and he drives infrequently, uh, very small amounts, nearby doctor's appointments, shopping, church, things like that. Um, and as far as the the financial planner was concerned, the price of the car seemed reasonable, maybe slightly on the high side, but that did not really catch his attention. His client had also purchased a, a very expensive add-on warranty for 10 years and 100,000 uh, miles. 
which is well beyond standard minimum warranties. So that sent off this question mark of what's going on here? Why did he make that decision? That's what caught the attention of the certified financial planner. You know, is that a reasonable financial decision? Is it reasonable? Well, you can make arguments. Is it a smart financial decision for an 85-year-old man with very significant medical issues? And then most importantly, and in, in for us, for him, and for us in the class, we um, got into it, is this decision deserving of more attention, more digging into from a financial vulnerability standpoint, as well as a cognitive health issue and an overall health issue? Well, certainly, you know, my group hearing about this, well, we think this is exactly the type of decision that does not get so much attention yet deserves a lot more attention. Looking into exploitation and fraud, um, prevention strategies, looking into protective decision-making structures and looking into connecting financial decision-making to potentially cognitive health and overall health and well-being. So, you know, um, what we found in our work is these types of stories from financial planners and um, from the banking side, the credit card side, the frontline financial planners um, or frontline financial people in general, it's very, very common for this type of, well, it's not one of those kind of out of the park, of course, fraud, you know, heartbreaking, you know, all the terrible things that we do know go on in this area, but it's a whole other realm that is underappreciated and certainly underexplored. Yeah, definitely. I think that story really well illustrates that it's not always the big flashy stories of scam and fraud like you're talking about. It's the smaller decisions that we make as well that also can be indicative of something else. So I wonder if you can kind of just take us into that vein of things, because like you're saying, it's not so clear on the surface, I think, to people listening that there's there is something you can you can make ideas about from seeing financial decisions and then what health looks like. So can you kind of talk to us about what that overlap is between financial security and cognitive health? Yeah, absolutely. You know, often the first signs of any cognitive decline uh, are found in impaired financial decision making in people who are unaware of, you know, any diminished capacity. Even worse, it can go unnoticed by people who are close friends or family. So, you know, what is it about a financial decision that can act as potentially a precursor to cognitive impairment? Well, even a relatively common financial decision incorporates many different parts of our brains simultaneously. So we often think about, well, financial decisions, there's kind of a math component. And sure, mathematical processing is absolutely a, a part of a, a financial decision, but there's so much more. Uh, judgment, risk tolerance, reasoning, relationships, emotions often play an enormous uh, part of why we make the financial decisions that we do. So if you were to do real-time imaging, uh, like functional MRI studies on someone who's making a financial decision in the moment, you would see multiple areas of the brain lighting up at the same time. So if any one of these areas should be impaired, the nature of the decision-making could be altered, revealing potentially the first sign of cognitive impairment. Right. So 
What are some of the signs that people who are friends and family of older adults could be looking out for to see is some of this happening? Is this something we need to worry about for our family member? Yeah. Um, so, you know, what's what's out there and plenty of literature, people really trying to get out of uh, in front of this are kind of these red flag signs. So and and these are extremely important. So certainly um, if you're noticing any of the, what might be obvious to some, but less obvious to others, but the red flags, if there's previous history of fraud or abuse, if there are signs of coercion, um, if there are new unexplained people acting as, uh, gatekeepers or making, uh, decisions for the person or sudden changes to, uh, documents, legal documents, financial documents, um, missing documents or, uh, you know, red flags would be large, uh, unexpected withdrawals or transfers, um, you know, from financial institutions or significant purchases, um, uh, uh, or significant loans or investments, um, disappearance of property, you know, so there's, uh, there's a lot of these red flags that do, you know, when you talk to people, of course, they would notice that 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 would be, you know, something that for a lot of people, it's not news to, they're also the more subtle signs, though. Um, and, and this is more about what, a, what, a, what appears to be a shift in the type of decision making, and that can be more or less risk tolerant. Um, or acting with more or less emotion than they had the change in decision making because again you know we're we're allowed to make decisions in the way that we want and even if they're not necessarily the decisions that most people uh, would say are you know financially sound good decisions you're still allowed to make those decisions but the subtle changes in how you're making decisions would would be some of the uh, much more subtle signs that that we would also want to be part of uh, this conversation. Right. So I really want to get into that, that part you're mentioning, all these different parts of the brain that are involved when you make these financial decisions. And so I think this is where we loop in that you're the director of this financial security program at the University of Denver. I'm sure you have different projects and research and things that go on in that arena. So can you talk to us a little bit about your program and what your mission is and what, what are you finding from some of the projects that you have? Yeah. Um, well, it's uh, we really love the work that we're doing here because it does bring in uh, a bunch of different disciplines, which makes it fun kind of on the academic side. But we also think it's the best way to achieve impact in this area, because when you start to think about the fact that, well, there's a, an actual real connection between the financial industry and people's overall health and potentially prevention of um, uh, worsening cognitive impairment or potentially early signs of, of diagnosis well before we'd see it in the healthcare side, there needs to be this collaboration. And when you start to think about, well, yeah, our, our brains are, are um, acting in this way that multiple parts <clears throat> are used to make financial decisions, well, then we have to think about, well, what is the role of psychology in these decisions? And what is the role of social work? Um, what is the role of how these things go together with your primary care doctor or your financial planner? There's actually a lot of necessary kind of collaboration. And so what we are doing in the program 
is a number of things. So one, it's it's for you know education. We're at the University of Denver at the Nobel Institute for Healthy Aging. And we act um, across campuses with multiple different academic departments um, all around campus. Um, so we teach, we have students, undergrads, graduate students, and professors from all, um, all these different departments who take part um, in teaching, but it's, um, it's so, so much more. So there's research into exploring these factors of, what, um, of those connections between financial decision-making cognitive health and overall health. And there's a stress and anxiety component to that as well. Um, but there's also what we've uh, identified is we needed to get outside of campus. And so collaboration and uh, collaboration with nonprofits, with community centers, with other academic institutions, um, and with the government on policy uh, um, and on task forces, uh, and finally, uh, the private industry, so that in, including the financial industry, uh, but also where there are solutions to be had that sometimes come from the private sector, we want to explore those, study those, and potentially then get the word out on what's being done well uh, and help with, uh, with that uh, type of development and collaboration. So we have a, a, you know, a number of things going on. It would probably take a lot longer than this podcast to go through some, um, some of those collaborations. I'll tell you one, one off the top uh, is that we're, we have a federally funded NIH grant with, that involves a financial management firm uh, located in New York who are doing some really um, potentially innovative solutions towards these types of prevention of fraud, exploitation, and, and help with not only older adults as clients, but their caregivers as well. And so a collaborative grant um, that, that might also you know, lead towards better uh, solutions. Uh, for older adults in this area and getting the word out and, uh, you know, increasing that type of collaboration as, as one uh, example. Um, other examples, you know, we are working on, well, you know, this, this issue really involves, a, a, we're not doing nearly enough in terms of how um, we're aging in the relationship between our finances and our overall health. And so we're working on something called, that we call a financial protective team. Um, which is a different model to look at how you can protect yourself and be uh, part of, of a team aspect towards your health and your finances that involves kind of a, a different structure and contractual relationship that, uh, that it has not been previously explore, explored. And so then that, that again is that connection between law, medicine, social work, psychology, things like that. Um, we're also working on uh, a, a different model of admission discharge uh, to hospitals. And as a former hospitalist, this is central to um, my heart as well, knowing that major health events also put us at increased vulnerability to financial fraud and exploitation. And they're a known source of just the increased uh, stress of being in the hospital we're not doing a good enough job um, as we admit and through the course of a hospitalization and how we discharge on the relationship between some of these financial issues that um, very often take some center stage for a lot of families after a hospitalization because of the way you know um, the bills come in and the payments and the stress around that. 
and then knowing that that's a vulnerability point. Um, so there's a lot more work to be done on that as well. So these are some examples of some of the projects that we're working on. Well, thank you for that amazing introduction to your financial security program. And you already touched on a couple of the places that I wanted to go and some of the projects that you're doing, one of which is what are some of the things that maybe as a younger person, a middle-aged person, you can do to prevent some of these issues as you get older? Like, is there some kind of safeguard you could set up so that when maybe your health starts to deteriorate a little bit, you don't have to, you know, be so concerned about your financial security? Besides the all the, you know, invest in a retirement plan and all of those other future financial planning things they tell you to do. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, so th there is certainly the the uh, the exact the financial side of things, and that's where there's a lot of financial education programs um, all over the country that have some valuable information on all of that type of thing. Now, what we've also noticed is that a lot of times when you pump people full of uh, facts about finances, it doesn't necessarily change behavior at all. Um, so it just increases the factual knowledge, and so. What we'd also, what we'd certainly want to do on that front is is uh, increase awareness of how these things go together and and make meaningful change in behavior and recognizing much earlier um, sometimes these uh, potential signs and warnings. Um, but the you know if you're getting the the best advice for what we can do. Uh, it really involves healthy aging, and this is where the crossover for so many of the uh, folks in your podcast, where you know we're all part of one bigger team on healthy aging, and and some of those things, uh, you know, I teach courses on this and uh, of, of the what you can do, and so we certainly don't have enough time here, but but just to list, you know, so many of the things that we can do to prevent. Um, you know, to, or to, to age as, as well as we can include some of the very common sense things that uh, we're not doing as well as we should, including getting enough sleep, um, learning, challenging the brain on the physical side, the regular checkups, including hearing, vision, cardiovascular, they're all important. But on the physical side, obviously, exercise and activity, what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Um, there are some nuanced differences there, but overall, that's a good rule of thumb. Social interactions, extremely important purpose in life, um, mindfulness, mind-body practices. Uh, there's increasing, overwhelming evidence of the positive benefits. Um, obviously, nutrition is a, a huge issue. Uh, Underappreciated getting out in nature um, and music are uh, some of the less appreciated kind of uh, best advice for overall healthy aging. Um, you know, all of these get get into kind of enhancing what's known as our cognitive reserve, you know, these alternate pathways to help prevent, um, you know, uh, uh, difficult issues that, that can arise with aging or delay the onset of disease or even lessen the severity of symptoms should disease uh, occur. So those are the, you know, those big, broad, healthy aging. I would say stay tuned with us. We there's a lot on the financial side that um, that that we have to offer um, that's also, a, you know, a larger conversation, but of how you can uh, protect yourself. And again, you know, that's getting back to the financial protective team that I was talking about. 
I think there's an element to all the things you just listed of people who are just like, I know what I have to do, but it's actually doing it (laughs) that a lot of us just don't do. It's like we all we all know what we're supposed to be doing, but we don't always actually do all the things. No, that's exactly right. And that's where, you know, the as uh, before I was at the University of Denver, I was practicing in internal medicine. And certainly, you know, you go to your doctor's office and they say, oh, you should diet. You should, you know, you should work on a healthier diet and you should certainly exercise more. And so like, as if people didn't know that. And yet, are they doing that? And so is that advice from their doctor actually moving the needle in terms of behavior change? That's where we're all about. Well, what is it that actually can take these common sense things that a lot of us know full well, but actually incorporate them into daily living? And, and the truth is, from my perspective, is that can be different for different people. And so there is not necessarily a one size fit all. Here's how you do it. It depends on the person, the circumstances to actually then um, dive into developing a more individual plan that actually does get at behavior change. Oh yeah, definitely. I've, I've become a fan recently of commit to small changes every day. Like the, like it's all building on baby steps kind of. So commit to something for even five minutes a day and then try to increase that five minutes over time, you know? (laughs) Yeah, and that's great, and if and so and and that's a it's a great method, and if that's working for you, also it's one of my big things. If there's something that's working for you, then you stick with that, and so you keep on trying to identify more and more tools in your personal arsenal that work for you, and then get back to them. And so you know, keeping some kind of accountability element to it, um, but most of all, with with you know, getting back to mindfulness is actually just paying attention to what we're doing and what we're not doing and what we would like to be doing. And so the more we start to, you know, pay attention to those things, the more likely we might be to then make some changes that work for us. But yours is a great example. Well, thank you. I'll <laughs> I'm glad on it's working <laughs> for that one. Um, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Um, one of the things that from your other projects that you were talking about that I'm curious about is what you were talking about with the discharging from the hospital, for example. So when it comes to the care in a primary care setting, in a hospital setting that patients are currently getting, it sounds like there's a huge lack of noticing this awareness you're talking about of these financial indicators that something might be going on. So what does that, you know, what does that discharge look like now? And what do you propose we could do differently, for example, to try to make all doctors aware of what they should be looking for? Yeah, no. And, and this is this is a big issue. And we're, we're kind of um, in uh, these stages of developing exactly what this looks like. But I'll tell you, I'll admit first off that I was uh, part of the problem. So in my hospitalist days, I just remember full well that when a patient's ready for discharge, um, you know, as the as the doctor, I, I just want to free up that bed for the next patient. I want to get that patient out. So just get the, the paperwork done, get the team on involved and get them out the door because we, you know, we've got other people coming in. And so that's the, the focus from the hospitalist point of view of keep everything moving. And especially so if they're at the point of discharge, let's go, what's going on, what's holding it up. 
this that that's wrong right there um, is a problem. But the other problem is that we're starting this, you know, sometimes we'll then rush the social worker or the pharmacist or any member of our team or the nurse who play integral. Sometimes they are um, absolutely the most important people on the team for various reasons, depending on the patient. But you do not want to rush that process at all. Um, and um, most of the time, you want to engage the support network, whether that's family or close friends, and you want to make sure everyone's on board. A lot of times when you're being discharged from the hospital, you don't necessarily have you know, full uh, appreciation of exactly everything that's going on with what, and the follow-up and the medications and where you're supposed to go and what you're supposed to do. It's just such a whirlwind of, of stress and emotions and the physical aspect and nature of it. And there we are as a, as the doctor saying, get him out, get him out. And the team is rushing and they feel rushed. And so we're doing what we can to get them out. So are some of these other issues brought up? Generally, not at all. Right. Um, but I would also argue it should probably should not start at the discharge point. And that's why we're calling it an ad admission discharge program, which is actually right when someone needs to be admitted to the hospital. Um, this is when, um, a, you know, kind of a broader outreach starts. So the discharge process essentially starts when you come in, which is start to identify who, you know, who the players are, give the, the social work team and hopefully give plenty of resources directed uh, um, to our social work team who are uh, overall definitely underappreciated in this process, but they need more time and resources to devote to the care of that patient, it'll be good for everyone. In the end, it will reduce, um, you know, readmission. It will um, reduce potentially some of these financial issues that we're talking about if you incorporate kind of our entire program. This is about overall health of, of the patient um, as they come in, so they they and their families or uh, people that are part of their support network understand the process and are aware of it. And obviously, there's a significant financial component to that that can be part of your overall health. The other major influence of finances is the stress that it causes people. It's um, year in, year out, one of the things that stresses people out the most in their life, along with health. Um, and these issues can lead to real physical symptoms. They often, a lot of us in, in the, on the clinical side have seen plenty of patients who the underlying cause of, of real symptoms, whether it's chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitation, stomach pain, the origin is stress and, and, and anxiety. And the major component of stress and anxiety was from your finances. The more that we start to connect these things, the better we would do for people in the big general sense. But the other thing that's concerning to us is these the people who commit fraud and exploitation, they know that major health events are actually put us at an independent kind of vulnerable point. So you're actually more likely to be defrauded and exploited just because you were in the hospital. Um, and so this needs to be brought to the attention of the healthcare team of how we're dealing with this, what type of bills should you be expecting, what are real, what aren't, you know, um, what is the follow-up, what's the support, what are the resources that you have available to you, so people are a little bit more comfortable on that, instead of just rushing them out the door and stressing them out, and a lot of times not having their support network have any idea what happened. Because I am curious how your background in law and then being a hospitalist in medicine ended up with you doing what you do today 
with the financial security program. And I know you also work very closely with the MBA program down at the University of Denver. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was an uh, economics and political science major in undergrad, and I went to law school uh, mostly because I thought at the time that I wanted to be in, involved in uh, policy uh, and politics, not uh, as the practice of law. But uh, And so it's a larger story of how then after law school and a few years uh, in practice that I then ended up kind of evolving over onto, into the medical side. But that the background for me does inform me in a lot of ways of, about how all these things end up going together. And, and so, so sometimes ways we, in our own separate silos, we don't appreciate so much. So let's say in the, in the legal field, we often approach dementia as binary in nature. You know, you have dementia, you might lose the ability to consent, um, to make certain decisions. And so, uh, you know, capacity to make those decisions also viewed too often in a in a binary uh, perspective. When we consider from the health side that we do this as well, where depending on the testing, you might then be diagnosed with di- with with uh, dementia. We know full well that dementia is often a process that takes years, if not decades, to get to that point where we've made that diagnosis. But then, when you think back to the law, well we're treating consent and capacity issues in a binary way in terms of the contracts that we're making, in terms of the wills, trusts, and estates, in terms of elder law as a whole. But this is really much more of a spectrum. And so the issue of consent and capacity, well, it's going to, it's going to hit the, both the legal side and the financial side because there are going to be more and more of these cases that involve the you should have known that my dad couldn't make those decisions, uh, and in part because of this connection between um, what's known in the financial field that, yeah, some, some people are making some spotty decisions on, their, on the financial side. It is um, sounding some kind of alarm bells um, for those frontline financial people, but they're not exactly sure how to handle those decisions. So this is where the finance side and the legal side of consent and capacity interact with overall health. Now, the best we can do is, yes, if all those worlds get together to create solutions, we can actually not only prevent a lot of these issues and problems, but also get at the forefront of diagnosis. You know, So from, from my perspective, when I was working as an uh, outpatient physician, I would a lot of times only see uh, cognitive impairment when it was brought to my attention, because before I started doing this, there is no standard screening in primary care right now for cognitive impairment. So unless you bring up symptoms, it doesn't come to the attention of most doctors. So then unless you you start to get involved in this and you start to realize I have to be doing this, whether or not it is uh, standard screening, most people are not. So if you go and you well visit at age 50 um, and there's n- you have no issues. They're not doing any screening for cognitive impairment, and they're certainly not asking financial questions that might um, be related. So part of what you know what we're working on as well. How can we actually harness all this research to tie in what the frontline financial people are seeing much much earlier than the health side are seeing? So it is it's it, it does it really involves the legal side, the financial side. Um, the health side and behavior decision-making and, and all of that. 
I just love, I just love what you do. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. I just can see, I can very clearly see the thread and how you'd get to one stage and you'd be like, nope, I need to know more. There's more to this problem. And you just keep going. I could totally see how that lands you where you are now and how important it is that you have the background you have because you really can dissect this issue of financial decision making so well. Well, it's still humbling. I think the, the one thing I realized <laughs> is that uh, th no one can own this field and, and it really does take a team. And so when we're diving into these things, we, we lean on each other in different ways. And so you wouldn't want me as your practicing attorney right now because it's been decades since I've had any, you know, any actual real you know, practice on that front. So we need help you know, in all of these different areas. No, I'm mostly humbled. I'm saying, I'd say if you're interested, Hannah, like, bring, come, come to our uh, team and, uh, <laughs> and join us because we're always looking for, I think what, what, what actually inspires the vision and the solutions is not about me just kind of spouting off. It's actually when we're in this group of people with different experiences and different backgrounds, that that's actually where the ideas come up, um, come from. And so if you hear me talking, it's that, well, this is actually just from our team. Um, and I'm just, I'm the spokesperson, I would say. Um, but so it is, it, it's a humbling um, area in that sense that it's very, it's impossible to own it. Um, but I do feel it's nice for me that it does bring back a bunch of different elements of my background um, together and and helps me explore. I, I say to some some people that I, I feel like I speak a, a few different languages in the academic world, and that helps me to understand kind of where they're coming from. Um, so um, that that's if anything, it's a bringing together of different folks uh, in different disciplines, and you know, involving also outside of academia. Um, so you know, this is a research and education program, and I'm at the University of Denver, but. I spent most of my life on the clinical side and on the practice side and not as um, the, uh, the academics that, that so many of the people here at the university are. Right, right. It's all about that perspective that someone brings to the table. I like that point too. So we're running a little bit out of time. So I want to make sure I get this last question in before we get too far. Um, this last one that I ask everyone that comes on the show, which is what makes you most excited for the future of aging research from your perspective and what your expertise is? Yeah, most excited. Uh, um, and it is a great question. And uh, there's, there's a lot to be excited about. You know, we all have our own perspectives on this. Um, for me, having worked, you know, many years on the clinical side and now at the University of Denver, I've definitely seen many of these intertwined issues that affect uh, older adults and the aging process from chronic disease, stress to finances, social isolation. You know, in my program, we, we, we really enjoy thinking outside of the box by, uh, you know, identifying that banks and credit card companies, investment firms, uh, financial planners are actually on the front lines of cognitive impairment. Um, that That's kind of an, uh, an out-of-the-box type of uh, endeavor. But as a whole, in the aging research area, we're collaborating much more than ever, you know, than, than ever before. Um, within institutions, so, you know, at the University of Denver, for, for me, across all these different departments, but also beyond our own academic institution with outside organizations, nonprofits, for-profits, private industry, you know, I feel like 
I'm part of uh, an incredible team of smart and passionate people whose mission is to create impactful change in the lives of older adults. What excites me the most is the number of uh, amazing people who are committed to providing impact in so many different ways. And, you know, Hannah, I'd I'd tell you that uh, that includes you and uh, your team at CSU. There's a warm, welcoming, collaborative spirit in the work that we're all doing. And this podcast is such a fantastic example of sharing knowledge, information in in an inclusive, um, creative, and impactful way. So I think for me, the most exciting thing is being part of this team and uh, this very large team of people who all have this shared mission. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for those kind words there at the end. But I would completely agree with you that anyone who, at least my experience too, who works in the healthy aging space um, at the community level, academia, you know, wherever in healthcare, we're all working together. I'm literally getting off this call in 20 minutes and hopping on a call with some nonprofits in town and our hospital system. And we're all going to talk about how we can work on age friendliness here in Fort Collins. <laughs> so fantastic. It's I like, well, how many, it. how many industries are really working that closely together? You know? <laughs> right. I wonder. Um, well, it, it's, it's great, but uh, it's, you know, it, it, that's inspiring. So I'm glad you're doing that. I hope you that you're also giving yourself a break between uh, all the different things that you're doing. Oh yeah, definitely. It's part of healthy aging too. (laughs) Most definitely. Eric, thank you so much. Thank you so much for coming and talking to us about this topic. I learned so much and I just feel like I have a deeper appreciation now for, you know, looking out for these signs that we've been talking about. Well, uh, Hannah, thank you for so much, one, having me on the program, but doing what you do, having listened to, I'd also encourage anyone to go back and listen to the other, um, the other podcasts because there's just so much, there's a wealth of information that you are bringing to light from so many different perspectives. It's really such a, an incredible thing you're doing. And, uh, and so I'm appreciative of that as, you know, uh, like I mentioned before, part of the, our overall team. Wow. What an impact you're making. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. You're too kind. You're too kind. I enjoy doing it. It's really fun getting to talk to people and hearing what they study all the time and what they're passionate about. It's important. And I like spreading the word about it. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.